I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. We're really excited for another episode of the Anti-Dystopians. And today we have two really incredible scholars who I'm so excited to talk more with. First, we have Paula Ricarte, an associate professor in the Department of Media and Digital Culture at Technologico de Monterrey and a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University and a co-founder of Terra Commune Network. And in addition, we also have in our exciting panel, Sebastian Lewadet, a postdoctoral scholar at the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at Cambridge University and a Technology and Human Rights Fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at Harvard University, who is also a member of Terracomi Network. So thank you both so much for being here today to chat with us about decoloniality, Latin America, AI, data, and territory. Thank, thank you, you for the invitation. Much. Also looking forward. Yes, thank you very much. Wonderful. So maybe we could just begin a bit by talking about your backgrounds so how did you first get into researching and studying tech? And what 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 is kind of the things that are that are motivating your study? I was thinking about this because it's not an easy answer because like when would you start accounting for this kind of interest? I would say that I was interested in technology since I was very little. My father, he worked in IT, so he would provide me with computers and everything since I was like very little. And then I remember as an adolescent, for example, I, every time I will break the computer, and one day I remember that I started deleting all the system files of my computer, and my father would be kind of excited about it. So I was kind of encouraged to, to explore, you know, computation and those kind of things. So that's one aspect of it. But on the other side, I was also super interested in social sciences, philosophy, and things like that. So at some point, I realized that I could analyze technology or the role of technology, but drawing on these kind of readings that I was doing and that I didn't think at the beginning that we're connected to to this other kind of hobby, so to speak. I also participated in some social movements, especially in the student movement in Chile. I didn't do much in, term, in terms of technology when I was part of that group, but, but that was like a question that I had, whether technology could help in any way achieve the goals of, of the social movement back in, I'm talking about 2010, something like that, like very, very uh, decades ago, almost a decade ago. And, uh, and besides that, at some point, I also joined some political parties in Chile, like the left, some center-left political parties, of which, as many people now, I feel like a bit disappointed. But uh, I also that also allowed me to think about the relationship between politics, technology, and so on. And, uh, and because of that, I think that I have like a sort of, as many people doing research on technology, even if we're super critical, I think that I have like an affective attachment to technology. And I think that I do research because I think that it can be different from what we have at the moment. So even if, at least in my case, I my research is, I mean, mainly critical about dominant technologies, I think that's because I have this secret, secret hope that there, there can be alternative technologies that can take over and replace the ones that we have at the moment. So that's more or less my, my background. Well, I don't have a hope. I have, like, the conviction that those technologies already exist and we just need to support them. <laughs> so, well, in my case, well, it's maybe similar to what to what Sebastian said. I have always been interested in technology my whole life. I always liked technology. I wanted to be a software engineer when I was young, but at that time, I was not aware of the social structures that prevent women from choosing those professions that are associated with, with men. So I started to study literature instead of engineering. But somehow I 
was always fascinated by the world of computers, codes, and languages in general. I afterwards studied uh, linguistics. So when the internet came along, I started to get involved first in online learning communities. I used to participate with, with people that were trying to, to think around new learning environments. I get, got involved in a, in a group that was founded by Howard Ringgold. He was one of the first thinkers around these issues. And then I got involved in activism when social networks emerged, like digital social networks. I was involved with several movements, first human rights in general, but then digital rights in particular. I studied surveillance, state surveillance in Mexico, and I also was part of an NGO devoted to achieve like digital rights or rights, human rights in general in Mexico. So I got involved then in like studying these issues, like from a more academic perspective without leaving my activism. I tried to articulate both. And now I'm also working in the field of public policy. So in a sense, I've been involved with technology from a long time, but my participation or my reflection has been changing uh, depending on the historical context and the circumstances. I'm also part of the same, let's say, tradition, critical tradition that tries tries to understand technologies from critical perspective. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm really glad because here at the Antidystopians, we're always, we love the critical approach to tech. So it's so wonderful to see how like the personal and political came together for both of you. I guess, so, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to studying technology within academia. And for both of you, colonialism and coloniality really seem to be like a theme and thread running through your work and the lens through which you're analyzing the issues. So I wonder, you know, again, thinking about, yeah, that link to like, you know, how we think about politics and technology, like what made you or what motivated you to choose that lens and and how does that framework kind of add to your understanding of both like technology and technology corporations but also like politics more generally well thank you for this question and as i mentioned i have been changing my mind or trying to reflect more on the way that we think on these issues and i would say that in like epistemological terms for me it has always been a process of transforming my critical reflection as a result of collective and historical learnings. I was formed in a Marxist tradition, let's say a classical Marxist tradition. And then I studied semiotics. So I used a semiotical background to understand social cultural processes. Then I incorporated the feminist critique and now the dimension of, of coloniality. So in a way, I could say that I have tried to articulate all these layers of complexity into my own reflection of the social, trying to fill in the gaps or trying to challenge like the rigid schemes of the frameworks that we use. So I have tried to move to transform my own process of critical reflection and the implications of using a certain kind of lens. So when speaking about decolonial framework in particular, I would like to just clarify that I'm positioning myself from a decolonial feminist critique. So not only from a decolonial framework in general, because there is a decolonial tradition that does not include the issue of violence against women as a fundamental mechanism of capitalist accumulation and also a fundamental part of the colonial extractivist regime. So I am very critical of using the decolonial framework just as a theoretical framework. And I think it's that's dangerous in, in the sense that we are usually not assuming that the decolonial framework is not only a theoretical framework, but a political praxis. So over the past, let's say, couple of years, this framework is becoming more and more prominent in different discussions. But I think we are also witnessing that it's being captured by Western discourses and institutions, including, of course, the academia, but also the corporations. So for me, in particular, what the feminist decolonial perspective adds to this reflection is that it incorporates the the idea 
of, of explaining how the matrix of power is a series of historical and complex configurations that operate at different levels of the reproduction of violence. So in other words, the colonial feminism, it's anti-racist, anti-patriarchal, and anti-capitalist. It's a critical theory, but also, as I said, it's a political crisis. So for me, what the decolonial framework, that the decolonial feminist framework offers is an horizon of critical reflection that commits us to a political practice of dismantling and breaking with all these mechanisms that operate from the most intimate and micro-political dimension to the biggest and macro politics. So that's my understanding and my explanation of why I'm using the decolonial framework, not only as a theoretical framework, but as a way to understand my own political praxis. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with Paola on probably mo most of the, all of the things that she said. But in my case, I think more personally, I think of course, me, the way I came up with Latin American decolonial theory in particular, even more specifically the modernity coloniality group, I think it was part of a broader personal trajectory kind of intellectual curiosity. I remember reading, for example, the, the Open Veins in Latin America by Eduardo Galeano when I was at high school and thinking about, you know, more kind of global scale structures and how they could shape the, the fate of Latin America in a way from a historical perspective as well. So I think that that kind of curiosity was before I joined academia. But then when I joined academia and started, started my PhD at the London School of Economics, that was back in 2017. And, in, and the next year, Arturo Escobar published this book, Designs for the Pluriverse. And that really changed the way I would see things. It blew my mind in a way. I wanted to explore more about it because it was super inspiring. It really connected as well with some of the questions that I had as a, I don't know, adolescent thinking about, you know, socialism, Latin America and so on. The way he would address the views of indigenous people, for example, in Latin America. So that was like a, a very kind of important point in my kind of intellectual exploration and also that will connect as well with some of the concepts for example that some social movements would use in latin america as well like territory of which we will speak later today and that was i don't know a big a big discovery and then more in more kind of empirical terms when i was doing my phd as well i found that so i did my phd about the governance of data in chile so when i was doing my field work i realized that the two main frameworks that we have to understand the governance of data which are open data and data sovereignty did not really speak to the concerns that I was hearing for, from my from participants of my research or people I was collaborating with. So I decided to come up with a different framework based on Arturo Escobar's work, Arturo Escobar's work uh, on autonomia in Latin America, autonomy in, in English. And that allowed me to, for example, connect issues of data with extractivism, territory, epistemic obedience, which is another concept that we can discuss. So that, that's how I came up in kind of empirical terms into Latin American decolonial theory in particular. Like the, I found that there was a mismatch, so to speak, between the way I was studying data governance and existing frameworks, which were, of course, Eurocentric because they didn't speak to the concerns of other regions of the world. Uh, and then what, what can be, what can be offered, what can this framework offer to the study of data and so on? I think that we're facing a very, very deep crisis in economic terms, environmental terms. I think like Europeans and people in the US, they know that this is happening, that we, we cannot continue acting in the way we've been acting over the last five centuries. And I think that the colonial theory really speaks to different to, to different worlds that can be created in order to leave this one behind. This one based on, as uh, Paola said, gender violence, economic asymmetries, environmental harm, and so on. So I think that's why all this sort of appropriation of the decolonial discourse is taking place in the West as well, because I, th I see that there, uh, that there is this kind of despair at the, in the current situation. So kind of they are seeing decolonial theory, theory and not praxis necessarily, as a, as a way out of the crisis. But that comes with a lot of questions, whether that's possible to do, how can you make the colonial theory, which emerge in relation to a particular, to a, to a legacy of a struggles in Latin America, whether you can make that speak to the Western context, for example, and so on, I think can be the probably most relevant contribution of the colonial theory in the current conjuncture. Both of you sort of talked about, you know, 
colonialism or decolonial frameworks have been kind of captured or appropriated by Western or academic discourses around tech. So I wonder, like, how how do you see that relationship between colonialism and technology and technology corporations? Like, do you think that's an apt comparison? Like, how do you think those histories of colonialism and sort of what's happening now in the world relate, you know, like, are technologies a new iteration of colonialism? Are they just sort of like a continuation of already existing colonial relationships that's an, that have never really gone away? Has like, like technology changed anything? The corporations changed anything? Or is this sort of like, typical of, of colonial capitalism? I think, well, as I mentioned before, the decolonial framework is an interpretative framework that questions those systems of domination. Also, it's a political praxis. It can be understood as a political plan that tries to lead to the rupture, rejection, and separation of the dominant logic that excludes alternative, alternative forms of being, thinking, feeling, doing, living. So this lens is useful to understand the discontinuities and the transformations of the processes of dispossession, epistemic and social violence associated with the major systems of violence like capitalism, patriarchal order, and colonialism. So for me, how can we understand the continuities? I think the main continuity is the logic of dispossession, these extractivist logics, and also the violence that is associated with these orders, with these systems. So what, for me, it's very important to understand that this system are sustaining each other, that they need each other, that capitalism needs colonialism and capitalism needs the patriarchal order as well as colonialism was based in gender violence. So that's why the world we have today cannot explain if we don't understand that that the result of the societies, the unequal and unjust societies that we have, is because these systems are interconnected. So we have like a neoliberal global wide financial elite that is trying to reproduce this violence over others for their own benefit. So technology is a is a tool to make this violence. Well, if we if we put it in their own terms, technology is a way to make violence more efficient, to optimize it and to expand its scale. So it's always been like that, but now the technologies that we have are more capable to reproduce this violence, to reproduce the forms of extractivism, to reproduce this possession, to reproduce this power and social asymmetries, not only at the local, but also at a global scale. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I also think that most of the dominant technologies at the moment are really based on the same logics of appropriation and extractivism that... Uh, that took shape in parallel with European colonialism. And in that sense, there is a continuity, of course, and in some cases, even an intensification. So, for example, if we talk about extractivism, old forms, so-called so old, but it's still, still recurring forms of extractivism are still existing in parallel with new ones. What is interesting is that if you look at technology, for example, under ball of data, you can see how old forms of extractivism, such as mineral extractivism, are taking place in parallel with new ones, such as data extractivism or the extraction of human data through, for example, digital platforms in order to control behavior or manipulate the humans and so on. So you can see how it's basically the same logic that, that is in place, but also with some changes that I think decolonial theory allows us to identify with some clarity from a historical perspective. And also what I find interesting, and perhaps I, something that is different when it comes to technology, is that they make it sometimes more difficult to, to recognize these extractive dynamics as such, because, for example, there is this idea that the data that we are providing to digital platforms that do not have any value, basically, they're raw or, I don't know, they're just there for appropriation, and then these platforms are free. So that's an example of how technology doesn't allow us to see these forms of appropriation. And another example is, and we, can we will talk about this later, I think, is how the idea that these technologies are immaterial or that pertain to a kind of cyber world makes it 
makes us uncritical about how technology can also affect the environment, for example, or the life of communities who are not necessarily connected, but are still affected by, by technology. So I think that's interesting to see continuities, but also changes, transformations, and so on, and how all these different forms of extractive, extraction and extractivity make up like a, a whole system, a single system based on many different forms of extraction. I guess to pull out kind of one thing that both of you are talking about, which is data. So, you know, there's you know so much discourse going on right now around like the role of data, like, you know, people, both people who are critical and proponents say, you know, this is completely different or unprecedented scenario. The amount of data that's being captured, that's being processed, big data, AI, like the techs that are able to kind of do unimaginable things, these, you know, language models like chat GPT and things. But on the other hand, then I think too, right, like modern state colonial powers have always been interested in in, in collecting data. So so I wonder if it, for, for the both of you in your research, how do you think about data and the centering of data and the concept of data? Do you think we're in a new kind of paradigm do you think data and these technologies are are i guess not unprecedented but but you know some some kind of new iteration and how how do we understand how those kind of like data driven narratives are relating to the wider structures of political control and domination and is that changing at all kind of historically yeah, I do think that it is super important to foreground data in particular for different reasons. I mean, I agree with your with your question. Actually, we can think of, for example, Western museums as ways that the West developed in order to organize the data or samples collected or even stolen from, from the colonies, right? So the museums can be a kind of sort of technology of the past in order to deal with previous deluge of, of data. But there are some particularities about this wave of datafication, I think, that is important to, to look at. So one of these dimensions is the extraction that we were talking about, right? So in this time, we're talking about the extraction of human data, of personal data that is used in order to manipulate human behavior. It's not that that didn't happen in the past, but I think that the extension at, or the level at, at which this is happening, it is new, that, that this is allowing private companies to really access areas of our life that we consider to be not private necessarily, but very valuable and, and outward before. So I think that's one aspect that is super important to, to look at, how, how data makes it possible to extract human life in a way that was not possible before. And the other one is epistemological as well, or concerning knowledge, because I think that, well, there's some criticism to the colonial approaches to data as if these approaches will be completely against, for example, data in itself or quantitative approaches. And I think that's not, not the case. I think the other problem brought about by the current wave of datafication is that data is presented as the only or the best means to generate knowledge. And that's super problematic because of different reasons. One of them being that this type of knowledge is only one among others. And if you remove other forms of knowledge, knowledge production, you have a very simplified notion of what being human or what society is. So you have, for example, the current wave of AI, which is pretty much based on the on the processing of vast, vast volumes of data. The notion of intelligence is super simplistic and reductionist. So that's another epistemological issue that I think is coming up with, with, with this new wave of datafication. And a third and final point that I'm going to mention, because this is more is closer to, to my own research, is the idea of development, because the idea of development has been there for centuries, right? Or, well, decades, really, from the 20th century. But the fact that we can see the different countries as advancing or moving forward towards a more European kind of way of life or industrialization. But I can see that data is also transforming development, because this time is not only about for example, extracting or processing mineral resources or hardware, so to speak, but also concerns knowledge because the more data you have in your country or available in your country, then you're going to be able to produce better or, or more relevant knowledge. And I think that's also super problematic from, from different angles. So I think that those three kind of transformations on extraction, epistemology and development speaks to, I think, what's unique or particular about the current wave of datafication and why we need to talk about data, algorithms, AI, and so on. Yeah, do you agree, Paolo, about the, the data center? Absolutely. I always agree with Sebastian. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I think that, as you mentioned, the identification of populations has always been historically a way of social control, but also a way to feed knowledge systems that in turn legitimize oppression. So I think, and I agree here with Sebastian, that this process maybe has changed in terms of a scale and, and social technical developments, but I don't think it has changed much in the purpose that it wants to achieve. So I, I wrote a paper on how these data-driven epistemologies operate, not only with the process of datification that I think it's important, but as a part of these broader assemblages that include infrastructures, institutions, norms, practices, imaginaries, narratives. So it's a complex set of is and processes that, of course, try to achieve this goal of make quote unquote value and also, of course, social control. So I see this process of notification as part of a broader set of epistemic operations. So these epistemic operations were not maybe present in historical terms, but other forms of epistemic operations have been used to continue the extractivism and, and the process of dispossession. So for me, it's a set of mechanisms that are working to deepen these processes of production of violence and dispossession at scale. And of course, all these epistemic mechanisms like datification, algorithmic mediation, and automation of society are anchored in to material dispossession. So we don't have to think that it's only a, it's an epistemic process. These two processes are entangled. Jose Medina says that epistemic injustice is tied to social injustice. So in, in our current times, these processes are social technically mediated by datification, algorithms, and automation. So for me, that's how it works. But datification is one of the processes. Well, I think we need to think of other processes that are in some way contributing to this goal of reproducing violence at scale. I wonder to sort of kind of switch, you know, we're talking a lot about kind of these most intangible processes, the datification, extraction of data, these kind of systems that exist in the, you know, the digital and internet can sometimes feel very virtual. But I think both of you have worked on data centers, which is a very kind of like material representation of, you know, the infrastructure of the internet, of the digital. And so I wonder if, if maybe you could talk a little bit about like your experience with the data centers, because I know Sebastian in particular, your research looks at resistance and, and local communities. And so do you think these data centers are, it kind of goes back to my question about what what's changing. I wonder like, do, do you think they're kind of a new representation of a different type of infrastructure of, of domination compared to kind of maybe like forms of, of imperial infrastructure, I mean, like the telegraph? Or do they bring up their own certain kinds of issues and how are local kind of communities resisting the kind of material, very visible sort of infrastructures? Yeah, that's a very good question. So yeah, in my research, I looked at indigenous communities in the Takama Desert, the Karantai indigenous communities, who have had some conflict with an observe an astronomical observatory in the north of Chile. And the reason, I mean, and the way I connect this with data is because the, the Chilean government and many actors see these observatories as having like a big value because they are producing vast volumes of data and they think that these data can bring about development in the country and so on. So I looked at the, the conflict between these indigenous communities and the an observatory in the north of the country. But also more recently, I, I collaborated with a local community in Santiago, the capital of Chile, opposing the construction of a Google data center because of the past volumes of water that this data center was going to use. The the, the current situation of that project is really uncertain, but, uh, but this group opposed the construction of, of this project back in 2019 and 2020 and, and so on. So what, what's interesting, I mean, I, I, again, I agree with you that infrastructure has also been kind of very, a very important aspect of the colonial project. And, and I was thinking about what's particular about data infrastructure. And again, I have to go back to 
the discourse surrounding data infrastructure. When we talk about the digital society or the information knowledge economy and so on, we rarely talk about infrastructure. And I think that's that's not a coincidence, basically, because the as I said, at the, with the creation of the internet, there was this idea of the internet as a virtual space or an immaterial space that kind of left out of the debate that the role of data infrastructure. And at the same time, there is this idea that the kind of mandate of like data sharing or open data that, that makes it seem as if you are opposing the construction of a data center, you are opposing human knowledge or you know universal knowledge. And that also makes it more difficult to resist these kind of projects because it kind of marginalizes any kind of critique and so on. That's what I, at least what I saw in, in, in Santiago in the case of, for example, the, these, the construction of these astronomical observatories in Chile. I have to say that also even some the colonial approaches to the study of data have sort of contributed to this as long as they haven't accounted for the impact of technology in the territories as well. And that's also important to acknowledge in a way. And what, what is colonial as well about all this is that for the separation between the virtual or the online and the offline, right? Because if you look at some indigenous ontologies or the ontology of some local communities, which is basically the way they understand the world, there is never a separation between mind and body or humans and nature. They're always considered as related to each other, as co-constructed. And it was during modernity that some intellectual scientists started to come up with this idea that we can separate both things. So I think that's another way of looking at how these infrastructures or the discourse surrounding this infrastructure can be colonial in a way and, and why it makes it more difficult to resist them. Even the sciences, so I studied astronomy, and even the sciences in modernity to a large extent has been developed under the idea of dominating nature, of the idea that the more science you have, the, the more you can dominate nature or control it. And that's how many people measure the advancement of societies. So I think that all those kind of Assumptions, discourses make data infrastructure particular because of its association with knowledge production, because it's usually hidden from the debate and so on. I think there is like very interesting research to be done, I think, in this area, because we, we really need to know more about how people are resisting data infrastructure and so on. Yeah, Paul, I do you agree? And I wonder too how that question of resisting the kind of intangible materialness of the internet relates to the resistance of that kind of material, very visible data, data center. Well, I think that, of course, a fundamental part of that assemblages is infrastructure. And many narratives try to dilute this material relationship of the digital economy because it's convenient. So as Sebastian was mentioning, we think of the cloud like this wonderful, white, intangible thing, but but it's just a narrative strategy. It's part of the imaginaries of the digital economy that are based in this idea of unlimited consumption. So this narrative supports our digital lifestyle, our current digital lifestyle. So this idea of we have to be connected all the time. We do not have limits to storage. There is no limit to computation processes. There is no consequences for with the consumption of water and energy. So all these narratives are important because it's part of the strategies that help us to not make those connections, that does not make us feel uncomfortable to continue promoting this digital lifestyle. So on the contrary, it's these narratives tend to create this idea that this full-time connectivity is desirable, that we all need to be connected all the time and for everything. So I think that communities and land defenders and also degrowth theorists are, are always reminding us that the cost of infinite growth is, is it's observed in the territory, in people's bodies. And of course, this is the reason why we are on the verge of a civilizatory crisis, or as Moira Millan calls it, it's a terricide. I don't know how to translate it in English, but it's an ecocide. We are killing the planet with these narratives of unlimited consumption and growth. So that's not sustainable, and our technologies are not sustainable. 
data centers consume lots of energy. Training and machine learning models consume energy as well. And data centers, as Sebastian was mentioning, also water, immense amounts of water. So I think that we have to begin challenging those narratives and also trying to, to listen more to the communities that are challenging and, and working to transform those narratives into different imaginaries and, and conceptions of technological development. So there are many examples in, in many places of the world of communities that are working towards a, an alternative way of relating to technologies, to these digital technologies. But for me, it's important, at least from Latin America, and I think that's one of the things that decolonial frameworks tries to highlight, is that people that are defending the territory for centuries, they know how to do this. They know what's the cost of technological development for them, for their bodies, for their territories. And they have been killed for that for centuries. So Latin America is the region in the world where most last land defenders are killed. So it, this is not casual. It's because, of course, we have a lot of resources that are useful for this capitalist model of development. We have lithium, we have water, we have land. We have many, many resources that are useful for this digital economy. But people are being killed. So... For me, the challenge for us also as academics is how to connect our reflections with the struggles of the people that, of course, understand this because they are living it, because they are surviving, because they are trying to organize against these superpowers that are not only local, but are also global. And they have all the resources, absolutely all the resources. And of course, these communities... Uh, only have their lives to fight against. So I think that's that's one of the main challenges. There is a there is a Latin American researcher, a Chilean researcher called Paz Peña. She just recently wrote a, a book on that. She she wrote a book called Technologies for a Planet. I don't know how to translate it in flames or on fire. I don't know. But she has also worked a lot on 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 making all how this techno capitalism is connected to the to the violence against territories and, and peoples. But I mean, communities know this for like for centuries. So so this is not new. The problem is that we are not listening. We are not connecting reflections and our political projects with with that struggles, with those struggles. Yeah, so it's super interesting that you bring up Paz Peña, Paola, to the debate because she is a super good example of something that's going on and that makes me feel optimistic about the resistance to data infrastructure. So Paz Peña, she is a, I mean, she worked as a digital rights activist and now she's looking at the environment. So I think that decades, some one or two decades ago, when you will talk about hacking or digital rights, you wouldn't think of territory, of the environment. But I think that there are new collaborations taking place between land defenders, for example, and digital rights activists that that can, from which I think something very interesting can come up, you know, because they're learning from each other. The digital rights activists are learning what land defenders have been doing for centuries, as Paula was saying. And on the other hand, land defenders are, are understanding, for example, in the case of lithium extraction in the Takama Desert in Chile, they're understanding what technological visions underpin the extraction of these resources. So I think that collaboration is super important and, and I'm glad that is happening at the moment. It's starting to happen in a way. I'm so glad also too that you highlighted like how important and related to like people's lives this is. It's not just some like abstract thing. It's just like really, really critical and also to like the survival of our earth as well. I wonder... To, to kind of just go back because it sh just always shocks me every time I read Sebastian that you would build a data center in the desert. Like it's just just wild to me that, that that people could think that that's a good idea. But I wonder, so maybe if we could go back for those listeners who might not know a bit about data centers. I mean, there's kind of this very like greenwashy rhetoric around data centers that they're going to enable environmental sustainability because you can compute they're more efficient etc but maybe you could explain about like how 
like kind of what what they are and why they take up so much water and why they do harm the environment and these territories and then maybe a bit about the logic of like why and I think I mean it's it's foreign companies right I think that that are coming in and doing this is my understanding but I might be wrong and like why are they picking these certain areas to build to build this infrastructure in yeah well thank you for that question just to clarify so what I studied was the construction of a data intensive astronomical observatory in the Atacama Desert, which is also which also requires energy, gas, and uh, water as well. It's important to mention that some astronomical observatories in the Atacama, one of them, for example, has a swimming pool in an area where there are many people who doesn't have access to water, for example. So that's one of the things that I studied in my research. But also the other case was the construction of this Google data center in Santiago, the capital of Chile, in a working class area. So those are two cases that I have analyzed. I mean, the reason why we're having this explosion in the construction of data centers is because artificial intelligence and other data intensive technologies require a lot of processing and storing of data. And different companies are looking for new places in order to build these data centers to create new efficiencies, to you know provide more a faster internet, for example, in, in the global south and so on. So but from our global perspective, most of the data centers are have, have been constructed in the global north, actually, not in the south. But that doesn't make it more important to analyze the south for one reason, which is that in the case that I analyzed, for example, in Santiago, this Google data center was going to use 169 liter of, liters of water per second. And this is an area that is facing a, what activists call a mega drought for decades. So you can wonder why is this happening? Because most of the data centers in the global north use a more advanced technology that doesn't require that amount of water consumption. And actually, after the struggle of this local group, Mosakat, uh, that I studied, that I collaborated with, they managed to convince Google, I don't know if convince is the right word, but they, they managed to make Google change the, the cooling system that they, they were going to use. So the reason why these data centers are so water intensive is because they require water in order to cool off the, the servers in which this data is processed. So I think that there are very relevant questions about global inequality or asymmetries when it comes to data infrastructure. Actually, with a friend of mine, with Anna Valdivia, a colleague, we are developing this concept of digital eco-imperialism because I think that it's important to look at differential criteria that are used in, in the construction of data, of data infrastructure. And well, we can talk about concepts, but I find imperialism important because it talks about constant expansion and violence as well. So I think that's a question that, that we need. The problem is that there is no transparency here. Companies, some of them self-report the amount of wa water that they use, but there's we have very solid and substantial reasons to be skeptical about their these reports that they have. And uh, in the case of Chile, the case that I analyzed, for example, Google was completely opaque since the since the beginning. It was super difficult for activists to to find out about this project. Actually, when this data center was going to be built, these activists and the local community didn't have the information whether there was going to be water for them, like tap water for their houses after this project was going to be built because there were no studies about the, the situation of the, of the local area. So I think that this kind of lack of transparency is also a big issue when it comes to data infrastructure, besides the global inequalities that I was mentioning. We've been talking about the environmental damage of data centers, but at the moment, if you look at, for example, what international organizations and governments are doing, the main way they frame AI is as a solution for the environmental crisis. I don't know, I have this webpage, for example, from United Nations, and its title is AI Saving the Natural World. So that's completely absurd. So besides this framing of AI as positive, we can also question, for example, some concepts such as green technologies. So one of the main green technologies that have been highlighted by different states and, for example, international organizations are electric cars, right? But electric cars require a vast amount of lithium to operate because lithium allows them to have rechargeable batteries. So on the one hand, these electric cars can generate less carbon emissions, but they require more lithium. And if you and in the research that I've done in Chile with indigenous communities, it is pretty clear for these communities that the lithium extraction is generating very profound and deep environmental harm. Colonies of flamingos have been affected in the Takama Desert. Some trees are dying because of it. 
And so we can really question who gets to decide what we define as green technology. I think that's a super important question that we need to look at at the moment. Paz Peña, the, the digital rights activist and writer that we were that we were mentioning, has also studied this. But I think that's something, a question that we really need to bring up and is super relevant at the moment. That's even more shocking details that emerge just as you describe it. Unbelievable. Paula, I think in one of your articles, you had mentioned micro data centers. And I wonder, I was really curious, I'd, I'd never heard of those before. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit maybe about what those are. And then also too about like like local resistance to to the actual kind of infrastructure. And do you think like, like when we talk about different kinds of resistance, that resisting things like data centers help us resist those kind of like wider structures of oppression that you've been talking about? Yes, thank you for this question. Well, we were mentioning that scale is a problem for the planet, right? We have these huge amounts of data. We need a lot of computational power to process this data, to train machine learning models. So part of the narrative is we need more, no? more data, more computational power, more scale to make this quote unquote useful for society. So this, again, this is not sustainable. This logic is not sustainable. This model has to change. And that's it. There's no way around. <laughs> so for that, we need to think about solutions. So if we don't have like alternative solutions, and these solutions are not only technical, because of course we know that technology does not solve social problems. These solutions need to come from a deep understanding of how our society works as a complex assemblage of things, of institutions, of regulations, of practices, of values, imaginaries, narratives, but also infrastructure. So one of the alternatives that some communities have been proposing is to say, well, we don't need such huge, big data centers because this only reflects that data is concentrated by some companies. That's it. You need so huge data centers because they are yeah, they are they're concentrating this this data from everyone in the world, right? So, what about if we change that? What about if we for example are the owners of our in infrastructures or telecommunications infrastructure, but also our data infrastructure? So, this is a process that is a process that is emerging in some places. Of course, this is not still a process that is common because it's hard to maintain infrastructure. It's, it's difficult not only in terms of resources, but also in terms of the energy and the time that you need to maintain infrastructure. For people that is taking care of infrastructures, like in the small communities or organizations, it's a full-time job. It's a 25-7 attention to the infrastructure because on the infrastructure depends everything. So, so yeah, having alternatives of communities that are like trying to respond to this with an anti-scale logic is super useful and promising and in the sense that we can begin thinking of different ways of relating to data and to technology. So, as I said, they are trying to develop and maintaining their own technological infrastructures and this is one alternative, but there are also other alternatives or other ideas that are emerging that relate to, for example, having data collaboratives or distributed infrastructures that can provide not this scale in terms of, of corporations, but a bigger capacity to maintain and, and process data. So I think that we need to think collectively to imagine alternatives that should be, of course, supported by not only technological developments, but also with institutional ways of making this possible. We did a study with a colleague called Rafael Gronman, and with our study, we talked with cooperatives in Latin America, and 
in context where cooperatives are viable, desirable, and there is a legal framework to support the work of cooperatives, these cooperatives can emerge and they do amazing work. And this is an alternative model because if you have a cooperative, everyone participates in a horizontal way. But in many contexts, this is not viable. In Mexico, for example, cooperatives are treated as companies. So they don't have the same tax taxes that companies have, and that's super unfair. So this is an obstacle for cooperatives to survive because, as we know, it's difficult to survive in, in economic terms. So I would say people are trying to develop alternatives, but we need to think how to make these alternatives viable and sustainable in the long term. It's Yeah, it's so interesting to think about. And it's also so important. And you've kind of mentioned in, in some of your answers, Paolo, about land defenders, about data resistance. And so I wonder for, for both of you as sort of like a one of one of the wrapping up questions like where do you think about where resistance comes from and what's the most effective form of resistance because it seems like a lot of that resistance is coming from like very local like local if that's the right word kind of communities but i also wonder you know because these are largely as i think about them like foreign or american companies coming in so i wonder how does like state or local government think about them and what are our different ways, both at different levels, we can think, you know, both from like a technical and political and sort of organizing strategy, where do you see resistance, like effective forms of resistance coming from? Well, I'm always optimistic because I think people are resistant in the way they can. Everyone is resisting. And again, if we see the history of Latin America, communities have been resistant more than 500 years. So we need to acknowledge that people are exploring different ways of resistance because violence is multidimensional. So we need to resist in many ways. It's not easy, of course, as I said, for many people, resistance means the only way to survive because they have been they are being killed. So in our case, I think that if we think of resistance as a way of achieving dignity for our lives and the lives of others and to recover the right to the future, I think of resistance as a way of re-existence, as, as the anthropologist Adolfo Alban calls it. So in re-existing, in finding ways to transform our relations in the way that we transform our visions of technology, our imaginaries, the way that we try to build different institutions, the way that we try to come up with different norms and regulations, we are resisting. So there are many layers of resistance in the way that we also, as, as the sociologist Nick, uh, Solirolnik mentions, the way we try to decolonize our unconscious is also a way of resistance. Because many of the problems that we have is that these narratives are so powerful that we have incorporated this in our relations, in our everyday relations. So we also have to think about how we are relating effectively to these technologies that are basically causing this harm to others and to the environment. So again, my short answer is we are resistant in many ways. People are resistant in many ways. All the forms of resistance are powerful. And we need, of course, to organize politically to achieve other ends. So I think that we need to think of resistance as the many ways in which we can, again, break these systems of, of violence. Well, I completely agree with, with what Paola was saying. And she says it in a very nice way as well. So it's super inspiring to hear her all the time, always. Yeah, in my case, I'm going to be, I'm going to focus a bit more on my research, what I have found in the opportunities that I have had to collaborate with different groups in Latin America. And I think that there are two things that I will highlight in the case of that region. So one of them is that 
there is a source of resistance that is coming from actors who are not necessarily the ones that we imagine when we talk about technology resistance. And I think that's super important. So one of them, for example, could be the very indigenous communities I was talking about resisting lithium extraction. So we usually don't, I mean, I think it's, it's happening now, but a few years ago, we wouldn't really associate lithium resistance with technology. But I think it's very important to make that connection and to acknowledge these actors as also resisting a particular vision or imaginary of technology, um, which is one extractive and has all the characteristics that, that we discussed before. But also, so I collaborated in, in this special volume at the Tapuya Journal, which is an SDS journal focused on Latin America. And there was also this collaboration from Brazil looking at the development of Baobaxia, which is an alternative internet network, which is based on the values of Afro-descendant communities in Brazil. And it's built, for example, with, with some seeds coming from trees, from the Baobab trees, which is a tree that grows in Africa, but has been also, it was transported to Latin America as well. So it's also present, present in Latin America. And they are really coming up with a very interesting alternative imaginaries. But these are not hackers. These are not digital rights activists. These are not engineers. These are not policymakers. These are local communities trying to make sense of technology based on their own visions of nature, society, collectivity, and so on. And another thing that I found super interesting when looking at the, the, the realm of digital rights or hacking, it is this challenge to the solutionism that is very present in, in the US and in Europe to some extent, especially within hacker groups. Because in Latin America in particular, some, for example, some of these activists have been collaborating with land defenders or feminist groups as well. So I think that they have learned that technology is not going to solve very deep structural problems. So there is a form of, of hacking or digital rights activism that is taking place in Latin America that is anti-solutionist and that really attends to the structural problems of society rather than coming up with technological solutions. And they see themselves as supporter of social movements and um, local communities. And I think that's a super interesting development. And all related to your initial question as well, I think that, and I agree with Paola here, all, all levels and forms of resistance are necessary and relevant. I would say that within Latin America, going back to the, the start of the discussion, the colonial thinking, I think, is super critical of the state for very legitimate reasons. If you look at the history of indigenous communities, the state means basically violence in different ways, also for women and many other groups. So there is a legitimate suspicion about the, the possibility of the state to bring up transformation. But that doesn't mean that the state, I think, shouldn't do anything. I think that states are also important here. But I think it's at the level of local communities where it's also important to look at at the moment. Without, Which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at other forms of resistance or change as well. But I think that it's at the level of the local where many interesting things are happening at the moment, at least in Latin America. The final question that I ask all first-time guests is if you could give one piece of advice to anybody, so it could be to academics, to universities, to Google, to a state government, wh whomever, whatever entity you choose, what would it be? I can come up with one, which I would say, I think that is directed to my colleagues in academia. So at some point, I think you ask, what can academia do and so on? I think that the first step, and this is also is based on several conversations that we have had with Paola, is the question whether we're really combating or contributing to the dynamics that we are denouncing to colonialist dynamics, extractive dynamics, for example. So if you do research, especially in the global South, looking at Latin America, for example, I don't know, I did field work in Latin America, talk to activists there. I also draw on Latin American decolonial theory and then there's this very important question of whether I am reproducing or not the same kind of extractive dynamics, which is which is super relevant, not only because I will be obtaining like a value or a benefit out of it, but also because I will be contributing to the politicized, these very important ideas that came up on the basis of historical forms of struggle. In some cases, very important concepts, such as, as we discussed, extractivism or territory can be presented in a way that is very obscure, mainly for other academics in a super theoretical way that is abstract at the same time, but that doesn't speak to the context in which this concept came up. So I think it's super important to to advance more reflexivity, I think, in, in, in the way we study technology. So I think, 
And that will be the first question, I mean, the first step, but then we can also wonder whether more participatory methods, for example, can also contribute to make academia more relevant for the local communities that we're collaborating with or studying. Well, maybe I speak to the superpowers of the world. And I think that one of the problems that we have is that we usually forget that everything is connected that and that we are all connected. And if you destroy the planet, you are destroying yourself, basically. So in order to have the right to the future, other values should be important and not only obtaining benefit and having concentrated power is, is the way that we can achieve a different world. So I don't know, maybe a short answer could be if, you, if you affect someone, that is going to have an impact on your life too. So, so if we want to have a better world, we need to think about that deep interconnectedness between between us, between us human beings, but between us and the environment and other beings that are surrounding us. <laughs> 